0: I really do my best to try to say what people need to hear rather than what people want to hear. I try to speak directly to the fear that most people feel with investing and then try to offer the historical lens through which they, may, they should be viewing it.
1: Hi, this is Alexandria
2: from Sacramento, California. You're listening to You're a Financial Planner, Now What? The podcast that helps you fast track your career by bringing you meaningful conversations on topics that influence new financial planners, their careers, and the lives of their clients.
1: We all hear that it's important for financial planners to develop a personal brand, but for many of us, the fear of coming across as pushy or salesy stops us from showing up in the digital space. Ashby Daniels, Certified Financial Planner, found a way to feel completely at home developing his brand and sharing his thoughts on finance through his blog, Retirement Field Guide. Up next, Ashby talks with Matt Fizzell about how he got started, how he keeps his brand simple, and how his content has turned into a mutually beneficial relationship with his audience. But first, this episode is brought to you by the 2021 Summer FPA Externship and eMoney, a leading provider of technology and solutions that help people talk about money. Don't miss out on the flexible internship experience that made waves across financial planning in 2020. The FPA Externship is great for college students and practicing financial planners alike. Come see how other FPA members grow their business and lead with financial planning using e-money. Also, don't miss this opportunity to get e-money certified. Check out fpaexternship.org for more information or sign up for the waitlist.
2: All right, everyone. Thanks for joining us on another week of the podcast. This week, we have Ashby Daniels from Shorebridge Financial, where he's a financial advisor. He also has a personal blog at theretirementfieldguide.com. You can find him on Twitter at RET, that's R-E-T, Field Guide. And yeah, thanks, Ashby. Thanks for coming on the show today.
0: Thanks for having me on. I'm excited to be here.
2: Yeah, of course, we really appreciate you taking some time out of your day today. And of course, we're here to talk about personal branding. So I just want to jump right into things. We live in a world where there's more and more noise every day, especially on the Internet. Why is it important for the career of a financial planner to have a personal brand?
0: Well, I think a personal brand, you know, I when I started writing on my blog, which I guess is probably the essence of the personal brand that most people would associate with me. I really did it as more of a way to be in constant communication with my clients. I don't think it has to be direct communication. Obviously, every, just about every one of my clients is a subscriber to my blog naturally. And I just think it's super valuable uh, to have a way to disseminate your ideas to them, to let them know what you are thinking about as you're thinking about it. So, when I think of personal brand, I think of it more as a way to get what you're thinking out in the in the broader world, but as, as an extension, or maybe most importantly, not as an extension, that's an opportunity for your clients to know what you're thinking as you're thinking. And why that's important is because, you know, one of the main ways that many of us advisors get new clients is through the process of referrals. Well, the one way that you can get a lot of referrals is constantly being top of mind with your clients. And for me, at least the easiest way for me to have done that was, was to write. So certainly there's other ways to do it, but that's, that's the way that I choose.
2: You know, that's a really interesting way to put it. I've never really thought about it from an indirect and direct standpoint, like you put it. And I mean, of course, referrals are always an opportunity. Have you found that your personal branding efforts have allowed you to spend less time directly communicating with your clients?
0: Absolutely. So one of the things I'm the most excited about is, you know, I, I have a kind of a project that's on the back burner as we speak. But one of the one of the ways that one of the things I was kind of most proud of in 2020, and, and it sounds terrible to say this and or I don't know about terrible, but I had a really great year last year. And I don't mean that obviously it was not a great world for a lot of people. And I, I feel for that. But from a, from the perspective of being a financial advisor it was a really great year me. And the reason why was through all the tumultuous markets that we had last year with COVID, you know the various movements that occurred and the, the, you know, the fears that people were having and the election and everything else, I can tell you that I got exactly zero phone calls from clients who were worried about what's going on. In fact, the only, the only cause that I got were people who wanted to put more money to work at opportune times. And I think that's really unique. And I think that that's I I attribute a hundred percent of that to the fact that I am in constant communication with them, and I am a, a huge advocate for long term investing. And everything that I write about is through that lens. And so when my clients read that, it definitely has the effect of calming a lot of their natural fears. So. For me, that's, that's the primary value of doing this, not to mention the fact that it offers your clients the opportunity, a very non-invasive way to introduce you to the people that are close to them.
2: Yeah, that's a really good point. And we actually had a similar experience where we really only had those who wanted to put more money in, you know, calling us when that was all going on. And quite honestly, our clients didn't want to hear from us unless it was a bad situation or they were in trouble. I just want to dig more into the concept of what you said there of, you know, putting out what's in your head, which isn't necessarily a recommendation or even a fact in most cases. How do you go about weaving that sense of it not being advice into your content, but still making sure that they understand you're going to add value? I'm somebody who definitively believes that I don't know what's going to happen next,
0: but I have faith in the future that everything will work out okay. I don't know how it'll work out okay, but I know it'll work out okay. And that's probably the thread that is weaved throughout every single thing that I write every time. I mean, even every single blog post I sign off with, stay the course. You know, that's that's how I sign off every single blog post. So from that perspective, when I say what I'm thinking, I mean, I may be talking about interest rates on you know, why bonds are the way that they are right now, what's the future look like for them. I'm not in any way, shape or form forecasting what's going to happen. In fact, I spend a lot of time on my blog saying how stupid it is to do forecasting. But at the same time, I say, look, I don't know how it's going to work out, but it's going to work out. And that is, you know, I'm a huge Nick Murray advocate. So I don't know if you like Nick Murray or not, or or if anybody on this call likes Nick Murray, but the way I look at the way I look at it is optimism is realism. And to so many of my thoughts, you know, I've read every Nick Murray, everything Nick Murray's ever written. And that's he's kind of formed the foundational backbone for what my beliefs are. So I just, you know, because I've spent so much time digesting everything that he's written, everything that I read goes through that lens. I mean, you know, we become what we consume to a large degree. So if I'm consuming positive stuff, even if I'm reading negative news, I can connect it back and say, here's what you're going to see, but this is why I think it might be slightly misguided. And this is why I think this based on, you know, history, which, oh, by the way, it's the only guide that we have. And so I kind of can connect those dots for people. And that's really kind of the, if we want to call it a personal brand, that's kind of where mine has turned into over
2: the years. It certainly is a great lesson in like adaptation where we need to be there for when our clients need to adapt within the financial plan that we've already created. As you've progressed through your career, have you found that, you know, with your personal branding and being more opinion-based and being intentional about that, it has made your clients more willing to buy into that concept of having to adapt over time versus walking out the door with a perfect plan and just being done?
0: Well, I mean I think so a lot of my clients have been working with them for you know 10 years or more at this point but what I think is I definitely believe that my clients have bought into what my belief system is and if nothing else as an example you know 2020 if there was ever a year that provided the ultimate lesson on patience 2020 was it and so as an example my whole stay the course mentality I say that over and over and over again. I mean, I even, you know, have a shirt that I put stay the course on it as yeah, you know, that's my that's kind of my tagline, even though I don't own the tra- trademark or anything else. But I just say it all the time. And so clients have adapted to that. And so I think as a result, they feed off of the optimism that I have or the faith in the future that I have, you know, charts and graphics and data don't convince anybody the trust that a client has in you is what encourages a client. Do they think that you know what you're talking about? And do you actually believe what you're talking about? Are you talking your book or do you actually believe at your core what you're saying? And I don't think anybody that knows me would say that, you know, or rather, I think everybody who knows me would say that I believe at my core that, That I have faith in the future. However, whatever that you want to take that to mean, I have faith that the future is going to be better than it is today. And that extends right into the market. And so that definitely I think clients feed off of that level of optimism that I I have always, even in the middle, even on March 23rd, even on March 23rd of last year, I was still being positive. And I think that that's helpful for clients.
2: I really liked what you said there and, you know, keying in on it being about your values. You know, that's what your brand is about. That's who you are. That's what you're going to write about. And it helps you find those clients who will just naturally buy into, you know, what you're doing for them very easily. I've noticed you're one of the few in your firm who's doing a personal blog and any other content in general. What inspired you to do that?
0: So I've only been with my firm for three years. I joined in March of 2018. But I was with a different firm from 2008 until 2018. And so this story actually goes a little little ways back, which was back in 2009, 2010 timeframe. I was working for a different firm and I was still down in the D.C. area. I'm in Pittsburgh now, but I was down in the D.C. area. And so being in the D.C. area and given that the firm that I worked for was trying to kind of develop a reputation within the federal employee market. I came across a few news websites, if you want to call them that. They were news information, benefits, websites for federal employees. And so I inquired I you know, I just kind of grassroots efforts, inquired with the owners slash editors of the sites to see if I could write articles for them on the topic of federal benefits from a financial perspective. And so when they said yes, I didn't really know anything about federal benefits, to be honest with you. But when they said yes, I took it upon myself to read the entirety of what's called the Federal Employee Almanac, which is, you know, a 500-page book on federal benefits, and it's a miserable read. But I was able to create, because I read it, A, I knew 99% of what was going on with federal benefits, and I certainly knew more than 99% of any federal employee I'd ever run into about federal benefits. And so what I did is I took content directly from the Federal Benefits Almanac, and our Federal Employee Almanac, and basically started to create some clever articles on how to utilize federal benefits in their planning. And so at first... You know, for the first year or two, it was kind of a trickle of new prospect inquiries as a result of my writing. And I probably was writing once a month for these different sites. And then I started to really gain traction around 2011, so give or take a year or two in, and started to get, say, one to two calls or emails per week requesting appointments. So I was getting, starting to get a nice lead flow from it. Well, unfortunately, well, I say unfortunately, but also fortunately, I was asked to move to Pittsburgh to take over an office and once i got once i got here basically it was all i could do to keep my head above water serving an existing underserved client base so i was so i basically i quit writing but i never forgot the lesson of what was possible and so unfortunately as time progressed even once i was here in pittsburgh the company decided they didn't want advisors creating content basically anymore so i had to wait until i left that firm to then restart the writing process and so i guess since you know 2018 i've probably written somewhere between 175, 200 articles at this point.
2: So one issue we commonly do see, like you alluded to, is not being able to do an outside blog within their firm. Can you shed some light on why that is and why some financial planners aren't allowed to have those outside blogs?
0: So a lot of companies, first of all, this is, I can't say that this is actually 100% accurate, but the way I kind of was told is the company wants the reputation to be the company's reputation, not my reputation. They don't want me to be the face of the company. They want the company to be the face of the company, which doesn't make any sense because to me, if I was reflecting positive on the company, that's a positive for the company. But that's not the way that the company viewed it. So there are certainly in a lot of these companies will hide behind the guise of compliance, which we all know. I mean, I'm at I'm still at a duly registered firm, but they, it's, I'm allowed to create content. So if you're being told that you can't, even if you're at a duly registered firm, it's not that you can't, it's that you're not allowed, which is two different things.
2: I can certainly empathize with what you said there. I came from the broker dealer as well. You know, it is really hard for them to have the thousands of advisors, but you know, at the end of the day, it could be done. So when you transitioned across the new firm, how did you go about having that conversation of having your own blog and being able to stay, you know, Ashby versus it being about Shorebridge? So I actually did not have an existing
0: blog when I came to my new firm. That was one of the reasons I left. And when I was looking for a new firm to join, I one of my basic requirements was that I have to be allowed to write and publish pretty much whatever I want. Um, like I asked all the, every, every important question I could think to ask Were there going to be, is there, are there any limitations to what I can write? And I got no, 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 everything you can do, anything you want, as long as you submit it through our compliance department. And I was like, perfect. And Shorebridge was an unbelievable fit. They were unbelievably good to me, um, in terms of helping me transition. And, uh, I had non-competes, non-solicits, which is a whole other topic of conversation. Um, but the, me writing was a requirement for wherever I joined. If, if they would have said, no, you can't write, I would not have joined. So that was, that was something that was really near and dear to my heart and something I really was adamant about
2: doing. I think that's really important to, you know, coming into it, it sounded that you knew you wanted to do that. That was a non-negotiable for you. For the new planners out there, it might be worthwhile to try writing or doing content creation before you make that ask and be sure you want to do it so that you can have those conversations in the interview and know what a good fit is going to be for you in terms of a firm. I do just want to shift gears a little bit and talk about your experience writing a book. Of all the places to start, you started with Medicare, which certainly isn't an original topic. And one thing I personally struggle with a lot is that desire to be original and Medicare is far from that. What led you to start your writing career with a book on Medicare?
0: <laughs> well, it's a funny question. Uh, just Medicare seems so uninteresting. But what happened was I started out to write the same 300-page paperweight on retirement planning that many advisors try to write. And what I, what ended up happening is, as I, for whatever reason, I decided to start with the Medicare chapter. And... As I started with the Medicare chapter, I tried to figure out what should I include about Medicare that will take up about 10 pages or so. And what I realized was I couldn't do Medicare justice to the point that it would actually be useful. And so I thought if the book couldn't be truly useful, then it was a complete waste. So I hit pause on the 300-page retirement planning book. And it really caused me to start thinking about how I could cre- how I could create something that would be different, you know, different from what other financial books were about, different in structure, different in how I approached it. So, what I decided to do was introduce a constraint to kind of encourage creativity by creating a series of books. So, the, my series of books are all called well, the first one is called Medicare Simplified, the second one is called Creating a Retirement Income Plan Simplified, and I have, you know, a few more in the hopper, but the series of books are all, quote, 100 pages or less. So, you know, it's Medicare simplified what retirees need to know about retire or about Medicare in 100 pages or less. So the idea being that people don't need to know every single little teeny thing about Medicare. There are plenty of 300 page books on Medicare. Same as kind of like the retirement thing. But does the average Joe want to read a 300 page book on Medicare? I don't think so. And so if my kind of thought process was, could I get 98% of what people need to know about a topic in under two hours of reading? And if I can do that, I thought that would be a really unique and useful way to set myself and my books apart from what other people are putting out there. And then I could create a series around doing just that. The other piece, the other idea being that People don't say, "Hey, I'm getting ready for retirement. Let me read a book that encompasses every aspect of retirement." That's not how they—that's not how they make decisions. They say, "I'm coming up on Medicare. I should probably learn something about Medicare. What can I read? What's a good resource?" So it's like, if I could create that resource, then that would put me in a different—a different group of people. That was kind of the thought, anyway.
2: Simple is definitely better, um, especially with all the clutter on the internet these days. So you have a couple of books on Medicare, on retirement, a few more in the hopper. How do you overcome that sometimes stale or this has been done before writer's block syndrome?
0: Well, they say that, you know, if you can't create something that you think is the best thing that's out there, then don't create it at all. You know, that was kind of my thought process is, am I saying that my books are the best written books ever? Of course, I'm not saying that. Do I think they're the most useful guides and the most condensed version possible? I honestly do. And I don't mean that in a conceited way. I just mean that's what I set out to accomplish. And I did my absolute best to accomplish that. So in lieu of just becoming just another piece of information, so to speak, I really just wanted to create super useful resources. And interestingly, you know, we can talk about this as well. The books have actually become fantastic prospecting tools, So you know, one thing I did, I I figured the worst case scenario was that I would write the book. I would be the only person who ordered the books, but I'd send three to every client with the idea that they read one and they give two to their friends. And that was tremendously successful. So that was the worst case outcome was that I wrote a book and I got new clients out of it. So if that's the worst case scenario, that was pretty good for me. But my goal really was to create what I thought was the best thing out there on a topic. I absolutely
2: love that. So with Going through that experience for the first time, what was your process for getting initial feedback on the book and making either the next version or that next book even better from your first? So I do have ways to improve on the
0: Medicare book in particular. I haven't gotten a ton of feedback on the retirement income plan book just because it was only released less than a month ago, but the... Medicare book, I sent to, you know, I sent to a couple of people who were at the age of Medicare to see what their thoughts were. And they all found it to be tremendously useful. So that was kind of a huge encouragement that I was, I think, on to something. And then um, I did have a friend of mine who works for a company who sells Medicare. Uh, actually, after it was published, he ended up buying it on his own, reading it and offered some feedback. So I went in, Within a week of publishing it and made edits. That's the benefit of self-publishing, is I could go in and make the edits in real time. And so any book purchased from that point forward would uh, would be absolutely correct. Now there was nothing that was materially incorrect, but he's like, there's a couple pieces of language that if I was you, I would adjust. And I said, perfect. It was probably only, you know, literally a couple things. But once, especially once I had, you know, basically somebody who's an absolute Medicare expert read it and say, this is excellent. Then I felt really good that it was
2: probably a great resource. That is so awesome. And one thing I really like about your writing is how you have a healthy dose of transparency and simplicity. Sometimes I think as advisors, we tend to try to hide behind our knowledge or hide behind our content. And why is it important for you to maintain that transparency and simplicity when you're writing? I hate to say, oversimplify this,
0: but I think that's just my personality. I mean, you know, my family would say you never have to worry about what Ashby's thinking because he'll tell you. And so it's not a matter of I'm I'm actually not a very talkative person in general, but if I have an opinion, I state it if it's important to me. And so what I try to do on the blog is I really do my best to try to say what people need to hear rather than what people want to hear. I try to speak directly to the fear that most people feel with investing and then try to offer the historical lens through which they may they should be viewing it. So I don't know that it's that I'm so transparent as much as I am adamant about my beliefs and how it kind of fits how that fits with common investing misconceptions. What annoys me about the industry is that they cater to the fear and use that to sell to the person. I actually speak directly to the fear and say, your fear is misguided, which is a a infinitely harder sale to make and, you know, a sale in a general term. But I really am doing everything that I'm doing to truly try to make a difference in people's lives. So I'm not trying to bring on a thousand clients. I'm trying to use my blog to push a message that I believe really all investors need to hear, but especially people who are at or near retirement. And so that's, That's really what it comes back to uh,
2: for the most part. Continuing down that theme of transparency and that just being part of who you are, I have to ask, I saw, you know, one of your most recent posts detailing how to turn book writing into a side hustle or some extra retirement income. And I'm just curious if that was planned from the start or did you just decide to do that after you saw the results you were having?
0: (laughs) That was totally a made up idea long after the fact. What there's an idea that's called learning in public. And in, you can could, you could make the argument that my entire blog is learning in public. Um, but that particular post is especially true. There's a couple creators whom I admire that have done similar things, like uh, Nathan Berry, who's, they, he owns ConvertKit, does a ton of extremely transparent posts about what's going on within ConvertKit, even showing down to the real numbers. You know, Jack Butcher, for a lot of people you know he's become you know somebody in in our in our industry who's very well admired he does the same thing and so I was like well why don't I do the same thing with my book and so that kind of spawned the idea and then I wrote a post about it so you know I think my my goal is to every month write a post sharing the income numbers sharing the sales numbers sharing what I've done to market it that is maybe pushing results or not pushing results and So just kind of taking it with the idea of learning in public. I mean, that's, that's really the, the idea behind it. It, it was not planned in advance. I just, after seeing these other guys do it a number of times, I, I, the, the light finally went on and said, well, you should do that too. And so, so I am,
2: you know, and even going back to what you had said earlier about the misguided fear about what our clients sometimes hear or what we might say around them. I think the same is true of making our content. How, how has this whole concept of learning in public made your content better? And why would you suggest that for a new financial planner, just getting started?
0: Well, I think my friend, Justin Castelli, who I know you've interviewed, I think you've interviewed on this podcast. Um, you know, he's huge on authenticity. And that's something that I think about all the time is if somebody met me playing golf, and they ask me about the market am i going to say something different than what's on my blog in fact i'm probably going to regurgitate the same exact thing because i it's exactly what i think and nothing else so you know there's it kind of goes back to the old adage that you hear when you're a child if you never lie you don't have to remember anything and that's kind of the approach you could take with regard to creating content if you're telling people exactly what you think then And I write exactly like I speak. So if somebody meets me for the first time and they've been reading my blog for any period of time, they're going to be like, I feel like I know you. It's, it's because I write exactly as I speak. And so I think the idea of just being super authentic is unbelievably valuable for creating a relationship, even through the written word. You could you certainly... Take that to a whole other level with video and podcasting, like you do, and and other things. But you know, even for writing, people can hear you speaking through your writing, whether they, you know, whether you think about it like that or not. So, I don't know if that answers your question, but that's that's kind of what comes to mind.
2: You know, over the past few years, with all of the, you know, fake personalities and influencer types out there, we've we've really arrived at authenticity being key, and it's no different than if you're meeting with a prospect for the first time or with your clients, it just goes a lot easier when you can be your personal self. So one thing that I wanted to ask quickly was you said you were bad at marketing your books. And what is that difference between making content and being a content marketer?
0: So creating content for me is so much easier. And that's usually what most people are the most, have the most trouble with. And the reason that it's so easy for me is because I can just hold myself up in my office, whether it's at home or, you know, at my office and just pump out content. Nobody's any the wiser. Like it it doesn't require, for me, it's not a lot of effort. I just, I truly enjoy doing it. When it comes to marketing, it's like, oh boy, I hope nobody thinks I'm a salesman. I hope nobody thinks there's, there's all these kind of imposter syndrome hangups that come along with doing outbound marketing, so to speak. So when it comes to marketing my books, I mean, I never really tried to make anybody aware of it. It just kind of took took on a life of its own for a little while and hopefully it's it's continued to sell pretty well. So the hope is that it continues to take on even more of a life of its own. But when I'm when I say I'm bad at marketing my books, I'm probably bad at marketing in general. I'm really good I think at creating content. I'm not as great at marketing simply because I never want to be perceived as, you know, that pushy salesman because that's just not my nature. I'm an introvert naturally. So I don't know if if that's kind of the way I look at it is content is easy to create for me. It's the, I mean, it's easy to, you know, just kind of upload it into my social media feeds. But beyond that, if I'm honest, I don't do a lot else with it. And so when it comes to book marketing, especially nobody's going to find it unless you help them find it. And so getting it out there and trying to get, you know, maybe more on a speaking circuit, I created a presentation out of it. So, you know, for, for any FPA members who are listening to this, you know, this is me marketing, I guess, if I have a presentation around Medicare, if you're FBA chapter, I'm, I'm on the programming committee of my FBA chapter. So <laughs> I, I, I know what this is like.
2: Um, so yeah, so that's, that's what I need to do a better job of. That definitely is an important lesson and you can, You can become great at creating the content and maybe it's just something that you personally enjoy. It it doesn't mean that you have to market it or you have to sell something for it to be a success in your own eyes. And of course, it does help to be good at those things if you are starting a business or looking to build something bigger. But it is important to remember you can just do it for the sole purpose of creating as well.
0: I've always heard that great work finds its own audience. And so I've kind of hung myself up on that in a negative way where it's like, okay, well, I get the audience I deserve kind of, but there's the other side of it, which is if you don't toot your horn, nobody else will. And so there is a unique balance that must be found there. And if, if I'm very honest about myself, I have clung far too much to the the first side of, you know, hoping that my, that my work finds an audience rather than trying to push my content to find, to help people come across it. And then, you know, one feeds on another. But I think that you have to find that balance wherever you feel comfortable. And I'm getting better at being more comfortable doing that second part. But for a long time, you know, for for probably two of the first three years I was doing this, you know, I kind of hid behind, you know, door number one and expected that, oh, well, people will find it. And that's probably not as true as we'd like it to be. (laughs)
2: <laughs> that would be too easy, right? Build it and they will come. Wouldn't it? Absolutely. Well, anyways, Ashby, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. I really took away a lot of great tips from this. And I think there's a lot of awesome stuff here for new financial planners who are getting started on their personal brand. And I really can't wait to see what comes from you next either. Uh, hopefully we'll see you around at conferences whenever they return.
0: Absolutely. Well, I look forward to it. And uh, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. it was a great time.
1: This episode is brought to you by the 2021 Summer FPA Externship and E-Money, a leading provider of technology and solutions that help people talk about money. Don't miss out on the flexible internship experience that made waves across financial planning in 2020. The FPA Externship is great for college students and practicing financial planners alike. Come see how other FPA members grow their business and lead with financial planning using E-Money. Also, don't miss this opportunity to get E-Money certified. Check out fpaexternship.org for more information or sign up for the waitlist. Love what you hear on this podcast? Join us in the FPA Activate Facebook community, where you'll find a community of other passionate planners like you. Not only that, but there are live how we do what we do sessions focused on what real financial planning looks like in practice. Be sure to join us there to lend your voice, become a better planner, and help grow the financial planning profession.